0: The question reads as follows. we will just read it verbatim. It says, Could Melchizedek have been a theophany? He sure fits the description of one. There were already half a dozen or so in the Old Testament. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Okay? So the first thing we want to look at is, well, what is a theophany? I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and what that is, is a manifestation of God. Some people would use it, you know, they, the world would look at sandwiches and things like that and say, look, there's God in the sandwich or, you know, pictures of what they think Jesus looks like in the clouds. And they, But that's what it is. So was Melchizedek, who was a real historical figure, was that God manifested in some form? Well, in this particular case, we know he was a man, right? It says it. Um, Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament and one one in Genesis. We'll try to keep this quick, so I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. But just so you know, maybe you're not sure who Melchizedek was. He was an Old Testament um, or Genesis character. And this is before Israel was even Israel what it was today. And he was a Gentile. And um, Abraham has just rescued his nephew, Lot. He was promised the chapter before that he was going to have this land that he was sojourning around, which was the land of Canaan. And he slaughters the kings from his whole country, right? They came, they made war against some kings there in the land of Canaan. They took Lot. He goes out and rescues them. He gets everything from that land, right? They went around sweeping through that land and destroyed much of the Amorites or in in battle. And they, you know, as any victor would, they get the spoil. So they have all this spoil from victory, and they have Lot as well. So Abraham leads out his trained men and goes and defeats him. On the way back, somebody else is coming to meet him, which is the king of Sodom. But somebody intervenes. It just says that Melchizedek went out and met him. And he carries two things, bread and wine. But what Abraham, why is it significant to Abraham? One, he learns a new title for God, possessor of heaven and earth. Right, So this man reveals something to him. It's, it, we're told that he's a king of Salem and he's a priest of the Most High God. So is he, he's a king. He's an actual king of the what we would know now as Jerusalem. It was called Salem, Jebus, maybe in some parts. But he was that Gentile king of that time. And his name was Melchizedek, but he was also a priest of God. So he comes as God, God's representative to reveal a new thing about God's character to Abraham, Abraham then uses that information to then go ahead and respond to the King of Sodom, right He had the opportunity to take God 's promises on his own and not wait on god 's timing. That's essentially what he did. He could have done. He had everything that God promised them, right the spoils of Canaan right there in his in his hands. They said, no, thank you I'm going to wait for God 's timing. He's possessor of heaven and earth and so Melchizedek is a is a prominent figure in the Old Testament. Well, I shouldn't say that. In the Old Testament, he's only mentioned about twice, and then once in Psalm 110. But when we come to the New Testament, which I think the questioner is getting to, he's more. There's more details given about him because he's. Uh, let's just read it in seven. This is the only part that I'm going to read in Hebrews seven. So for Melchizedek, verse one, King of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed them. And Abraham apportioned the tenth of everything. He is first. By translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is King of Peace, without father or mother or genealogy, and neither having beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, uh, he continues a priest forever. And so that's from the English Revised ESV version. So first, the simple answer, and then we'll explain how I got there. The answer is, what I see is no, he's not. Because of a couple things. One, um, let's look at verse three. It says, he is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. So let's look at the first phrase. He is without father, mother, or genealogy. Now, without taking too much time, the, the writer of Hebrews is explaining, and everybody who was a Hebrew would understand that those who are priests have they don't need ancestry.com to understand that they're a priest. They have nice gene- uh, genealogical records that say this person is from Abiathar, this person is from Ithamar, and that's how they map out the priesthood. So this person, Melchizedek, doesn't have any of that. No father, mother, genealogy. There's no record of him ever being inside that priestly line of Levi. So that's what that means right there. So, and of course, it doesn't even mention who his mother and father genealogy was, so that you can look at it like that. But neither beginning of days or end of life So if we just look at it like that, it doesn't say he was born at such and such a place and he didn't expire at such and such a place and he was buried here. It doesn't say that. But what does it it say? It qualifies it by saying he represents or resembling the Son of God, he continues a praise forever. And so Melchizedek, what it literally means is he's become a facsimile of the Son of God. Now, that word, we get that from our fax machines. So if I want to send something to somebody I sent I put the paper or whatever maybe I scan it and out comes on the other side goes through the telephone wire up comes the other side a facsimile now is the facsimile the actual original thing it isn't so if melchizedek was the original object god himself there would be no need to say that he resembles god because he would be god right so he becomes a facsimile of the son of god and so just look at it just like that there's other Points I was going to try to bring out, you know, the the high priest being taken among men and things like that, you know, but just looking at that particular uh, uh, verse here in seven, he resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever, and so he becomes a facsimile of the Son of God while not being him particularly, but his office, his what's recorded of him, he becomes a facsimile of the Son of God, who right exists forever, no beginning of days, right? He's God Himself. But he is not. Um, I would say he, that he is not a. Phlo, uh, ph- I mean, somebody, somebody's got the, the, the theophany, theophany, right? He's not God appearing before. Now there are others, as the questioner just you know uh, points out. Samson, uh, Samson's parents, right? Possibly, maybe this uh, God or Jesus Christ uh, before he became Jesus Christ uh, appeared to them. So, any case. The answer would be Noah and Melchizedek, and we'll turn it over to our brother. Thank you, Brian. You answered the
1: question. That is good. You know, sometimes when you get question sessions, and uh, I've been accused of this, guy talks for a long time, but he said he didn't answer the question, and he did. So that was great. I like the way you answered it first and then said what you got, how you got to it. was very instructive. Uh, now, this is my last night, so again, I want to thank you for your hospitality and fellowship and a uh, nice house. We've enjoyed being in this house. I've been able to dash over and say to Jane, don't be late, you see, <laughs> instead of holding the car door open. Uh, no, it's been very really nice, and we've appreciated it very much. And God willing, we will we'll be back next year, but it would be great uh, if the Lord came and I could say, you know, I won't even say I would have been at your chapel because. We'll lose all sense of dates and time and it'll just be wonderful. Uh, Now, I've got to get into this because last week I went over time and uh, this week I'll probably go over time, but uh, minimize that. We've got four letters to do because we're doing more letters from the Lord and uh, they're great because they're personal letters from somebody we love. You look at them that way and you're going to really pay attention because personal letters from people we love, Always get our attention. And that's one of the sad things these days, by the way. We don't get personal letters in the mail. Um, we get short texts. We get a bill or two. In our in Canada. we get many, many flyers and ads. But that's about it. I was thinking this summer, for reasons I'll tell you in a minute, when my grandchildren were at camp, that even kids at camp now <clears throat> don't write home, you know... Uh, saying, come and pick me up, I've no money, or something. They just text home on the iPhone. So there's classic camp letters. They barely arrive in the mail. Like this one. I've got to show you this classic camp letter. This is from a guy called Zach. Dear Mom, I'm having fun. uh, We've left the spelling, because Zach had it, of course. I'm having fun at camp and learning stuff. I rock at windsurfing and kayaking, kayaking. I've ate more push pops than anyone. I've ate 23 since Monday, still two days left. Good, you packed extra underwear since I had diarrhea. It got to my shoes, but not my pillow. I use my toothbrush to dig for worms. Don't freak out. The guy in the bottom bunk lets me use his. It's safe. I don't know his name, but he can burp the alphabet like me. We put oatmeal in the counselor's baseball cap. It was pretty fun. Love, Zach. Well, it's a little humor, but just uh, thank you for laughing there. That little girl's into this. Just a little reminder, letters are great from kids and from everyone. But this, ah, these are four more letters. We only did three last week to the seven churches. These are letters from the Lord we love, and that's what makes them so very, very important. And tonight, Briefly, I hope, we're going to try and do Thyatira Saudis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, you can realize this is two weeks' ministry, but you guys are up for it. It would be wonderful to get through to see an overview. And here we are. Coming up the coast of Asia Minor, Turkey, as it is today, uh, to these first-century Asian churches. And they're important because they spell out what the Lord applauds what the Lord finds unacceptable in the lifestyle and behavior of us in the church that represent Him on earth. This is what we do. The Theophany days, I won't say they're over, the Lord appears in visions to people in Iraq and things like that. But these days, the representative of Jesus is, well, the local churches. And you remember with Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon last week. And here we are again now, we've got four really salutary warnings, and and they have the same message, remember last week, the same message, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's why you need to pay attention. Well, let's get right into them, because of time, Thyatira, it's always the ruins to show you, that's a sad thing, I can't show you how it used to be, but I can remind you what it was like, so we're... We're traveling to uh, what is a small city. It's on one of the very busy highways in the Roman Empire. The thing about Thyatira, it's important you know these things because you've got to get a feel for what it was like to be a Christian then. Uh, And um, one of the things about Thyatira, it collected a lot of trades. There were wool processers and dyers and tent makers and metal workers and weavers. (coughs) <coughs> now, the reason that's important, you'll, you'll see in a moment. By the way, Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, talked about in Acts 16. She came from Thyatira. I was in Turkey and I actually looked at some of this uh, Lydia's purple. And I thought, well, it's red as far as I'm concerned, but it's a mother root dye, and you could make a lot of money by extracting that dye and, of course, dyeing wools. And Lydia seemed to be a prosperous businesswoman. Now, why you need to know that is that a lot of trades and businesses in Thyatira, meant many trade guilds. Unions that settled. I mean this union joining unions to work somewhere is not a new problem. Everyone who worked in a trade in Thyatira needed to be a member of the appropriate union if they were gonna carry on a successful business. Now, that made it very difficult for Christians eh, because the meetings of the guilds, they didn't just go through the agenda and do the business. They involved immoral and licentious behavior. The, the meetings were connected with the worship of the erotic Greek idols. So, so when you went to a guild meeting, it would begin with a meal consisting of meat offered to idols. And therefore, it was avoided by most church members in Thyatira. And of course, the immoral and licentious behavior was not the thing for the believers. So the economic consequences were devastating. They need to know that, because what's the matter with these cows? You see, they were uh, impacted financially by being believers in Thyatira. Now, let's get into what Jesus said. It's interesting, it's the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus uses the title Son of God. And I always look at how Jesus introduced himself, uh, each one of these letters, because it's always relevant. And of course, it's just another reminder that it's nonsense. Those people who say Jesus never claimed to be deity just aren't reading the Bible. So, here's the Lord, uh, Son of God, stressing his identity, not only as the Son of God, but saying, eyes are like blazing fire and feet are like burning barns. So, the Lord's introducing himself in a way that commands your attention. If you think, ah, I'm not going to listen too much to Dave Humphries tonight, listen, these are the words of the Son of God This commands attention and he's the one that can see through our postures and our pretensions. He has piercing eyes with searching judgment. He can trample any... We talked about evil. When's God going to do something? He can trample any evil under his powerful feet. And he said, listen to the words of the Son of God, the Divine One. So pay attention. That's what he's saying. Now it's like the other letters, I love this, Jesus first commends them. I reminded you to commend people if a young brother does something and you want to tell him where he went wrong, tell him what went right first. Tell him the good things. And Jesus said, look, I know all about the many good things that are happening in this church. What does he say? Let's look at the verse, verse 19. I know, remember he knows, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, some churches are in decline, but they were moving forward. So they had the essentials sorted out. They were loving, and they were doing, and they were persevering. And it's always, you read these letters and say, this is great. I mean, this church was growing. It it was doing better as time passed Uh, I mean, this is a pretty impressive profile for any church. They, they were busy, they were serving, they were showing love and faith, concern for others. So, we're talking an attractive church here on the face of it, anyway. And you can't think, you know, this is a place to be. But you see, and this is a very important warning for us, under the surface, there was a very, very serious problem. This stuff was going on, but the danger for the church at Tyre Tyre. It wasn't like we had last week persecution from Imperial Rome or challenges from the Jewish community.
0: It wasn't a big
1: issue there. And this is often the case today. Tragically, the danger arose from weakness and temptations and false teaching coming from within the church. Even though all that was good that was going on, what made the problem so serious and so difficult to deal with is it was something insidious happening in the church, and it was very serious. In fact, there was a dominant woman in the church who the Lord names. He doesn't give her a real name, I don't believe. It's a figurative name, a name that matches a character, and it's her name, Jezebel. Wow, that rings bells, doesn't it? That was the most evil woman in the Old Testament, really, arguably so. I mean, she was the wife of King Ahab of Israel, Remember? was a main influence that made the worship of the fertility god Baal popular in Israel. She was a woman who tried to kill Elijah after his famous encounter with those uh, 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And she murdered Naboth just because her husband wanted his vineyard. This was a ruthless, this was an immoral, this was a juicer of the people of God. And, and 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 the Lord looks at this church, and there was a dominant woman at Thyatira, and she was teaching stuff, particularly in their context, that it was all right for them to go along with the requirements of the guild. Because, I don't know exactly what she said, but you can guess the argument. You know, you need to submit to the pressures of society. I mean, after all, you've got to make a living... I mean, business is business. You have to make it. I mean, people say that today. It's not a new argument. You know, God understands. You can overlook a few things. Um, I mean, you've got to tolerate a bit of immorality if you're going to be, do business. in there. You could go... That, that happens. I've heard people rationalizing wrong. Rationalizing wrong is not a new problem. And you've got to watch yourself. I mean, if your conscience is trouble when you're you're doing your taxes... Or, you may be seduced by pornography. I mean, I do a lot of images for my PowerPoint. And man, if you don't have your safe search on, you can put the most innocent thing in and get the most grossest pornography. And there you are, lingering, tolerating, and then rationalizing. I was just checking up. I mean, anyway, you've got to tolerate stuff. Toleration's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, you hear it all the time. No, says Jesus, not when it's tolerizing No, tolerating... Well, I've just invented the word there. Tolerizing. (laughs) Tolerating moral compromise. Look, things that go against the right way I have taught you, Jesus said, are wrong. It's it's an important, familiar concern. I mean, it's not the first time we've met it. The church at Thyatira warns us of what is an ever-present and always serious danger, tolerating... Moral compromise. So Christ says, Listen. And it's such strong stuff. Verse twenty three. I mean he said he said, I'll strike a children dead and all the churches will know I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And you read these letters and say, Wow, the Lord knows. And he responds. Uh, what I like about these letters, though, is always that individual touch. This is individual, and it's focused. It's saying you. It's talking about individuals. And that's encouraging, of course, as well as challenging, because as well as judging the evil, the Lord speaks to those who are not involved in this. Of course there are good Christians in Philadelphia. And to those, I like the way he does this. He says, to the rest of you, verse 24. He has this castigation of those that tolerate this stuff, and it's just like we heard from Philadelphia, it says, you hang on till I come. How often we've we heard that message over these last two weeks. And then follows a fabulous promise. I mean, the Lord is so gracious. He, he said, to you overcomers, verse 28, to you who don't compromise, the great promise is, you'll know my presence, you'll know my blessing, and he said, You'll know the morning star, and that's Christ himself. The morning star, Revelation twenty two, reference to the Lord Jesus. What a blessing. Just get this compromise, forget it, overcoming, rewarded. It. And it's individual. Jesus, hey, not everybody's the same in any local church. Jesus says the rest of you. Make sure you're part of that rest of you. Now, there's more to be said about every church, but I'm going to try and move on. Sardis, uh, where there was an acropolis, a high place, it means, in chapter 3. We're now into chapter 3. We've moved 30 miles south. It's a city. It's like the other cities, fabled particularly for its past wealth. It was in decline. Still important, a woolen, textile, jewelry trade going on. Lots of the same things. It's... The thing about Sardis that's distinct is it was thought to be impregnable because it had an ideal physical position. Uh, it sat on a mountain surrounded by steep cliffs and there was a, they were very difficult to scale and there was only actually one narrow way of approach. And you say, oh, don't give us too much geography, get on with expounding scripture. But you see, it's important because Sardis was thought to be impregnable and yet it had been attacked and conquered twice because the problem for the city as a whole, they were overconfident, and were impregnable. And so they didn't watch, a lack of watchfulness. Now you need to know that because it, the lack of vigilance that lost the city was something that was reflected in a way a lethargic kind of torpor, a, a kind of self-confidence began to ruin the church in Sardis. And so the Lord comes to them with that background. What does he say? Verse 1, he says, I am... Christ comes and says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God and holds the seven stars. No little tricky to know what that means. Remember, seven is used in Scripture as a symbol of fullness, of perfection. And so Christ is really saying, This is the Holy Spirit. I'm presenting the Holy Spirit in the fullness of His power, His wisdom, His sufficiency. In other words, it's a spirit that can revive and and re-inspire any sleeping church. And this was a sleeping church. And so Christ, holding the seven stars, the churches are the stars, of course, holding the seven stars, he's emphasizing what he said so often, his authority. He's the head of the church. He's the director of all the activities. Something I stressed in every talk, something absolutely fundamental. An important reminder of every church today, the Lord's in charge. It's the Spirit of God that we need. But here's Sardis. I look at Sardis, I think it's the only one of the seven churches that really doesn't get a commendation. Now the Lord does speak to some individuals. Again, it's it's targeted. There's not a general commendation for the church as a whole, but there is recognition of some individuals. Very important. Because faithfulness, and, and do remember this, if you're struggling away and faithfully working on some ministry, remember an individual's faithfulness is never overlooked by the Lord. And it's striking in these letters that that happens even in the difficult churches. Because this, I mean, it's not that is had a bad reputation. It had a great reputation. And to humanize, again, it, it looked like everything was okay. But in fact, it was out of proportion to what the Lord saw. It, it, it's the Lord that knows what's real. It's, it's the Lord that, that looks beyond appearance. It's the Lord that said, I want to see what you're doing now. You see, reputation is usually to do with the past. No church can live on the memory of past accomplishments. I went to a big assembly in the UK. I won't mention where or give any clue. Uh, and it wasn't not great. There was not really more people than we got here. And I got then were talking about how how the balcony used to be full and how did had these great meetings. And I realized when I came came away, I said to Vivien, mean, "You know, they only talk about the past." What a tragedy. We've got to look ahead, because dying churches, they're not always dull, they're not always heretical. And at Sardis, there wasn't the huge problems that you've, we've had in the other churches. There wasn't a lot of persecution. They didn't have a Jezebel or a Balaam personality causing error and disruption. I think they probably had good programs. They probably had good activities. They were certainly well known in the Christian community, and uh, probably well-attended meetings and everything that that you might want. But you see, that made the problem worse because on the surface you wouldn't really guess that there was a problem. In fact, as I read this letter and think about it, even the church leaders didn't realize the sad reality that Jesus said you're dying. You're on your last legs. I think, man, if I had gone and preached A sermon like this at Sardis, they say, well, that's a sad church, I'm glad we're not like that, because they didn't know they were dead. I think when Jesus said they were dead, he didn't mean it literally and absolutely, because there were a few that were alive. That's the important thing. Uh, And in fact, he made an offer that with repentance, you can be resuscitated. Certainly, I guess, dying, yes, but not completely beyond hope. Now, I think every local church needs to face the challenge of Sardis. You may I, This is not a dull place, this is not heretical, but we need to be challenged by what's going on here. And just ask, always ask yourself, and, and I'm saying this because it's a good church, and I'm, you know, it's our home church in Florida, you're baptised... Jane, and you go out. We love to hear what you're doing—evangelistic Bible study. So easy to say this, but say, are we in such a comfortable routine when we meet that we don't see sometimes that the spiritual power is waning, or, or there's not so much reality in what we do? These are good questions. Do we do we fail to recognize the Lord isn't so central in our focus that our love for Jesus is no longer the driving force behind our efforts? and plans, and I I don't think it's true here, but these are questions to ask, because Sardis for me is a warning against the danger of orthodoxy without life. Outward appearance, but no vibrant spiritual growth. I don't know, I haven't been to an assembly that isn't orthodox. I mean, they may have a few different ways of doing things. Um, And it it, it can look good, but they, they can't remember the last convert. And there's no vibrancy, no joy that's what it's about and, and you see, Jesus said to this church you've got to strengthen what remained, there was something there in other words, he didn't say look, what you need is a lot of new ideas you need a fresh innovative approach you know what he wanted them to do? just go back to the basics what did he want them to do? He taught, recognize the importance of the Holy Spirit, you rely on the power of the gospel to change lives you recognize that I'm the head of the church We got because Christ is the head of the church. We need the Holy Spirit and we've got to rely on the power of the gospel. I know some churches have great innovations and I'm not, I'm not against them. You're pretty conservative here. I don't see any big bands. and huh, It doesn't matter whether you do it or don't do it. The important thing is the basics. The strength we need is the power of the Holy Spirit And the Spirit's just ready to help us return to what the early church had in Acts 2. Don't think Acts 2's over with. It's the same Spirit. So the Lord's call to Sardis, it's still a call to the local churches, and I'll summarize three things. Wake up and be ready for his coming. Well, that's been the call all day, and we know that. Strengthen what remains from when you were truly alive, he said to them, and then remember the importance of relying on the Spirit's power and Christ's control. Key things. Absolutely important. And the key question we must ask ourselves, and it's always important to keep asking this, is this. Many, many times you ask the question, is what we're doing truly done for Christ and because of our love for Him? That's the bottom line. You see, people want to go along with the ma- my majority view these days. But here's a church where the faithful ones are few. But what's great is glorious rewards. You know, he said, you few are faithful, you'll be acknowledged before the Father, before his angels. You'll walk with the Lord in purity. And, and it's not everybody at Sardis. And that's a concern to reflect on. You could be in a good church, but not part of that those faithful people. Don't be afraid, is it hard to be amongst a few who really listen to the Lord, always try to do what He asks you to do, and you do that because you love Him and you want to please Him. Because it's the few, I, I looked a bit at church revivals a, a while ago, and I always, it's a few people that catalyze the repentance and renewal that, that happened, and that I think the church needs today. So join that few. That's a personal challenge. Wow, these churches, let's move to Philadelphia. There's so many lessons in these. Now we're in verse 7, chapter 3. Very quick trip. We're 28 miles down the coast, southeast of Saudis. And we're in uh, Philadelphia. It's an area liable to earthquakes. And uh, it was a very stressed church. Not only because of earthquakes, that was bad enough. But the thing about Philadelphia was there was very strong Jewish opposition different situation altogether but it's unique amongst the seven churches you know it's the only one where the Lord registers no complaint against the church as a whole and you look at it and you say this is a weaker church I mean it's not as strong as some of the others but it delighted Jesus that's the difference people might come in and say well it's not a very strong church man there's only a I don't know what it is, it's not packed out. You see, but that isn't the issue. The, the, the issue it is: do we delight the Lord? Don't be intimidated by this mega church growth situation. I'm going to meet with coffee with an old friend of mine after this meeting. Has came to our assembly for many years. He's he in a great growing church in Fort Lauderdale. I forgot what it is, one of these big ones. Serving the Lord well... And he'll talk about the huge numbers. And and I'll tell him, oh, we didn't have that many, you know, at Boulevard, but it was a good group, and blah, blah, blah. But as I talk about it, I thought, what delights the Lord? Now, of course it's great for them to have a big crowd, but what the Lord's interested in, as I read these letters, is the love and fidelity to him, the obedience to his will that the church shows. That's what matters. Because he's head of the church. And he goes to this church, Philadelphia, he says, Look, I'm the one that's holy and true. And he wants this struggling church church and oh, I'm the one who has authority. I'm the one that's totally reliable. I'm the one who holds the keys of David. I'm the one who controls I'm the one who controls access to God's kingdom. We can read about that in the Old Testament, won't go into that. But this is the Lord that comes to this church and he reminds them in verse eight, Look, I'll open the door. You may be a weaker church, but access to heaven, to God's kingdom, is assured for you. And it's great, you know, in, in addition to access to the kingdom, to an open door, Christ assures them in verse 9, you're going to be vindicated. I mean, remember, they suffered from powerful opposition. These Jewish groups, you, cannot, you know what the Jewish groups were saying. You're going to be shut out of the kingdom. You follow Jesus. It was like Smyrna. The Jews were giving them a hard time. In fact, uh, their opponents are called the synagogue of Satan in, the, in these places. And Jesus said, don't worry. There will be a day when your enemies will be humiliated and you'll be seen to be my people. And more than that, look at verse 10. It shows them, you'll be delivered from judgment. One of those great events in Revelation 20 unfold and the books are opened and you're going to be kept from judgment. You can be delivered into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And there's more blessing. You look at this, the Lord promises in verse eleven, you'll be given a place of honour in the kingdom. The name of God will be written on you. Hey, how good can it get? And these promises are personal. They're not we these are they're all about Christ and them, about his name being on them. It's, it's about their right of citizenship. It, it, a new name that makes it clear I belong to Jesus and always will. And those promise And you read those promises as I will, I will, I will. It's Jesus making a commitment. And it's so encouraging. And he's co- he said, you, you may be weak, but you focus on the future outcome. Your places are short. Listen, the door will be open for you. You may be weak, but all I want you to do is not give up. Just hold fast. You remain faithful until I come again. And that, that's been a sub-theme all day. I hope you've got it. We've got to be faithful until the Lord comes. Remember James this morning, all that he said. This is what the Lord wants. This is the challenge of the day. To, the church of Philadelphia reminds us that the, what the Lord wants to see in His churches, and that's faithfulness. Don't give up. That's the challenge in verse 11. Note it. Don't give up. Whatever trial, you just wait for the coming of the Lord. And it's been a great chance today. Remember, I had Snoopy this morning, the ball pulling. But the message of that really was never, ever give up. I grew up in England. You know, I was a boy in the Second World War. Uh, I thought it was lots of fun. I used to go and collect the shrapnel after the bombs dropped. And I used to love seeing these guys come over London and never thought about the death and devastation. But my dad, man, he was a fan of Churchill. And he used to hear him say, Never, never, never give up. Oh, man, talk about inspiring speeches in wartime. But well, that's what we need. And that's what Jesus is saying. And it's an important lesson. Now, I chance myself to be in Laodicea by fight when we made it. Look at that. The last church, chapter 3. I know I'm going fast, but you can get this. And it's a real pity in some ways this is the last letter. We've little time left because I think it's the most vital and relevant for us today. This is the crowning indictment of Laodicea. The warning is against the danger of lukewarmness and being unaware of our desperate spiritual need. Unaware of the condition we're in. And this letter, I believe, gets to the heart of what a healthy church must be like and it deals firmly with the biggest challenge that many churches face today. Because the essence of a healthy church is open, joyful, committed relationship to the Lord Jesus. That's what it's about. And this church, as far as I can read in scripture, was a church, everything was great in many ways, but it didn't have that. We know from verse 20, such an important verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You use it in the gospel, but it's addressed to this church to remind us that in this church, Christ was left outside. At this point, Laodicea was a church existing without the active presence of Jesus. He's an outsider. And this is a challenge, and he introduces himself. How does he introduce himself? verse 14 I'm the amen I'm the faithful I'm the true witness I'm the beginning of God's creation what he's saying he's saying look I'm the only total reliable witness I'm the one who has priority over everything I am unalterably the only standard by which everything in the church has to be assessed and so he comes to this church to challenge them and says you're you know you're lukewarm you're neither hot nor cold You know, Starbucks serves some great coffee. I I don't want to wet your appetite before I finish speaking, but do some great coffees, including a very pleasant iced coffee, which I'm sure in your climate you like more than the hot stuff. But I've got to tell you, I like a good hot coffee in the morning. I like a good iced coffee. I had a nice one yesterday. Great. Both of them go down easy. But I'm a funny guy, you know. I get a hot coffee, then I get talking like talking, of course. I told you that this morning. Jane says, I talk too much. But there you go. That's one of the burdens of marrying late in life. (laughs) But I talk. And I talk. And then I go, oh, my coffee. And I take a sip. And oh, what a shock. If I wasn't in polite company, I would want to spit it out. Because it's cold. Or just a bit more. Jesus said to the They say, in church, I like a lukewarm drink, and I want to spit out and reject it. It's unpleasant. The lukewarmness is unresponsive, lacklustre appreciation of the love of Jesus, and it's a serious problem, and it makes Christ want to reject the church. You look at this, and you think, well, a lot of churches have big problems. They had heresy, they had false teaching, they had immorality, here's a church doesn't seem to have those things there's no doesn't seem any heresy or false teaching there's no big problem with the morality I mean and they had certainly no shortage of money they could buy the van when they needed the van apparently but they had that fatal flaw and all that was going on the Lord's outside the door I mean it's really serious remember in in the Ephesian letter it said you're losing your first love but this letter, they seem to have lost all their love. And it wasn't always like that. Remember, you should read through the whole of the New Testament because in Colossians 4, Paul talks in a positive way about this church. He greeted them. He doesn't say anything negative about them at all. In fact, in verse 12 of Colossians 4, it refers to the way Epaphras worked hard for those in there this year. And in verse 7, 15, he mentions a great house church. He gives greetings to the Christians in Laodicea, including Nympha and the church in a home. So they had vibrant small groups. Uh, they were working hard. It, it was great. Uh, and Paul says in verse 16, I want you to make sure that the Colossian letter is read in Laodicea. So I can infer that they were beginning to experience the big problem at Colossae because some of the believers at Colossae felt Jesus wasn't enough. That's why Paul wrote that's why Paul writing Colossians stressed oh, Christ is everything he's the beginning he's the end he's the head of the church Colossians 3.18 in everything he's got to be preeminent he writes, he writes in all things he created all things He's before all things in him all things hold together that was the thrust of his letter and he said you got to read that letter. Laodicea now it's a generation later what did I tell you? The local church is only one generation from extinction. Generation later, the Laodicean church, Laodicean church it's fallen to the point where Christ is outside. I mean, it seems incredible. And they didn't realize the pathetic condition they were in. Listen, you've got some younger guys here. I see some people under 30, and some people about 30, and some people half my age. I want to say something to you because I'll be in heaven before I know it. Well, not before I know it, but before you have a chance to be an elder here. One generation. Keep this before... No U-turns. You're going to have the responsibility to keep this place a vibrant place for the Lord. Even Malcolm's not immortal. <laughs> You're going to have to take this seriously. That happens so quickly. And we need to... In fact, The challenge of verse 17 is they say they felt they didn't need anything. When they had money, they had property, they had people, they didn't realize the total poverty because they didn't have the very one for whom they existed. And without him, I've got to tell you, how does Christ describe this church? Imagine describing a church as wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. What a description! Boasting of wealth. They didn't recognize the true state. I read that last week and I thought what a contrast with the vision of the church in Revelation 7. There was a church wasn't naked it said it's clothed in white robes and they have their robes washed and made white through the blood of the Lamb and they serve him and they're before the throne of God and he shelters them with his presence. When you read that and you think this is the options we face with and without Christ. We could be naked or pure white robes. Beautifully clothed, truly rich. And it's it's just a reminder. What a wonderful picture there is in Revelation of the Church with Christ at the center. Because it says, you know, Revelation seven fifteen says, He will cover them with his presence. That's what I call being clothed. So, what does Christ ask of this church? What is he going to say to a church like this that's so rejected his presence? What does Christ say to a pitiful church that thinks it's fine and going places? It's wonderful. He says, I'm rebuking you because I love you. I read that. And I think, what's he going to say? He says, I'm here, just let me in. What a, what a response he offers healing and forgiveness and he says you can be rich you can have your eyes opened you can see that you have nothing if only your brows, I have everything and, and you'll open the door because I can make the spiritual rich beyond the wildest dreams imagine he says I love you just open the door and it's individual and personal again and I want to make it that way It's a personal invitation. It's to you and you and you. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in. And I want to say as we finish it, maybe the few, but as I've said twice already on this visit, most church revivals start with just one or two praying earnestly to the Lord. My prayer is, as we conclude this visit, that the Lord will open your eyes to see His outstretched hands And open your ears to hear his voice uh, and know the joy of letting him take over completely. To hear and respond. That you would join the earnest few, the overcomers, those who make it happen and those that enjoy his reward. Because you know what he wants. I I do a review last slide, and I did this already on Wednesday in connection with a checkup for the church. The handout's still there. You can get this. So finally, what does the Lord want? The church, the letters tell us, Ephesus, that you love him. Smyrna, that you endure in certain hope. That's the message of the day. Enjoy, persevere. Pergamon, obey God's word. Phaetira, live in moral purity. Sardis, show life in the spirit. Philadelphia, trust and witness. And Laodicea, or resist that, that materialism. You're rich and yet you're naked. Love the Lord. Endure in certain hope. Obey God's word. Live in moral purity. Show life in the spirit. Trust and witness. Resist materialism. That's what Jesus wants. May God give us the, the strength and insight to please the Lord. May God bless you. Father we thank you for these challenging letters we realize yes Lord they reflect things that are going on in our world today and perhaps in our hearts and we ask that through your word and by the power of the spirit and because of the love of Jesus we respond with more love with absolute certainty in our trust in you with a determination to follow your word to live distinct lives pure and holy ready to show a vibrant life in your spirit trusting you witnessing as we can and Lord above all in this rich country to resist the seduction that we talked about just a week ago of riches We ask this Lord for our blessing of course but for the glory of Christ in whose name we give you thanks for this local church.